Father in heaven, what a privilege it is to be gathered here together studying the Bible. And Lord, we thank You so much that You've given it to us, that we have the precious pages that tell us about Jesus. And Lord, we thank You for the sacrifice that You've made in our behalf, and You're constantly working so that we can understand You more. And Father, I just pray that as we study Your Word together, that Your Spirit of truth would guide us into all truth. And You tell us that spiritual things are spiritually discerned, and so Lord, we need Your Spirit to help us to understand. Please guide us and lead us as we study together. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, last night, for those of you who were here, you remember that we talked about the origin of sin and the fall of Lucifer in heaven. You remember that, right? We were looking at that very uh, extensively last night together. And we realized that there came a point where Satan rebelled in heaven. Now, I'm going to back up a little bit for those of you who weren't here last night. We asked the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And we realized and we saw from the Scriptures that Jesus or God is not the one that causes suffering in this world, right? Remember, we looked at that in Matthew chapter 13. And we saw that Jesus said that it was an enemy that had caused the suffering in this world to take place. And we looked back in Revelation chapter 12 and we saw that there was a war in heaven that caused this turmoil to start happening. Now, we started diving into what that war in heaven was and we looked in Um, Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14, and we saw that it was when Lucifer desired the position of God that he started to pull people away from God and started saying, hey, God's not as good as you thought he was, but really, if you want a good life, you need to follow me, right? That's in the basic essence of what he was doing. Now, we realize that in Satan choosing to fall away from God, we saw that Lucifer or Satan was one of the angels closest to God before he rebelled. Ezekiel chapter 28 tells us that he was one of the angels that covered, and there were only two angels that did that. We saw that finding that passage out in Exodus chapter 25 with the Ark of the Covenant and the covering angels. You remember this, right? This is just a recap of what we looked at. And we saw that Lucifer was one of those who fell, and he started to reject the authority of God and claimed that his way was better than God's way. Now, what happens when we think that we know better than God? Well, disastrous results, and that's what happened in this world, right? We see that Lucifer, the Bible tells us that sin or iniquity was found in him, right? That's what we found in Ezekiel chapter 28, and we looked at what is sin or what is iniquity. 1 John chapter 3 verse 4 tells us that sin is the transgression of the law, right? God gave us a law, the Ten Commandments, that are to safeguard us and to give us happiness in life. And Satan said, you know what, I don't need anything about that. I don't need to have worry about having other gods before the true God. I'm going to be my own God, right? And so Lucifer rejected the authority of God, rejected the law of God, and then he came to this world. Revelation chapter 12, verse 12 tells us that we needed to watch out, right? Because Satan comes down with great wrath, knowing that his time is short. Now we saw after Lucifer fell from heaven that he came to this world, and was he content with just a rebellion in heaven? No, absolutely not. We saw in Genesis chapter 3 that Lucifer, after receiving worship from a third of the angels that he drew out of heaven, he desired to gather followers here on this earth as well. We know the story in Genesis chapter 3 where Adam and Eve were placed in the garden and God said not to eat of one of the trees, even though he had given them thousands of other ones that they could eat from, right? God was not starving his children. He gave them everything that they needed, but he gave them the opportunity for disobedience so that they weren't forced to obey God, right? We talked about God didn't create robots, but God created free moral agents that would love him by freedom of choice. Now, what we're looking at tonight is that we realize that once sin came in at the Garden of Eden and Eve decided to sin and then she gave the fruit to her husband, we talked about the the fact that the fruit wasn't poisonous. It wasn't the very fact that eating the fruit was what killed them, but it was the disobedience to God that caused the suffering and sin in this world to take place. Now, the question this evening is what happens when sin comes in? What are the consequences? And notice with me, Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, and we're just setting the stage for tonight's study. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, and it says, through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin. And thus death spread to all men because how many sin? All sin. Now we know the verse in Romans chapter 6, right? Or Romans chapter 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we'll look at that in just a moment. 
But we realize that through one man's sin, the fall of Adam and the fall of Eve, that now sin became this rampant disease that spread to everyone. Now, I used to think that's really unfair, right? Why would God allow disease of sin to just spread to everyone? Well, this verse tells us it's not just because it was hereditary, but it was because by our own choices, we all chose to follow the path of Adam and Eve in transgression ourselves, right? We didn't need just to get it inherited from our parents, but we realized in our own hearts, we all turned away from God, and that's why Scripture tells us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now the problem with sin is Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2 tells us that your iniquities have done what? Separated you from God and your sins have hidden His face from you. Now this is a terrible result. You realize that when man sinned, that when we fell away from God, it wasn't God turning His back on us, right? God was always there and He always will be there. God's the faithful one who's always willing to have us come back, but we realize that we turned our backs on God. And because of sin, we left, and God now, we're separated from Him because we have no desire to follow Him. How many of you hang around people you don't like to spend time with? Right? It's oxymoronic. You wouldn't even do something like that. You wouldn't spend countless hours with someone you can't stand. And that's how when we had the, the sin dwelling in our own hearts, we wanted nothing to do with God, and there's this gulf that comes between us. Now, I want to ask you a question. What happens when someone is separated from God? Now, there's an analogy that you can think of. Has anyone been scuba diving before? Anyone here? Now, for those of you who have been scuba diving, I have not. I've only been snorkeling, and that terrified me enough, so I didn't go scuba diving. I might someday. But imagine that you're scuba diving, and as you get below the sea, you decide, you decide that the oxygen tanks on your back are really your worst enemy. And as you're 300 feet below the water, you want nothing to do with that oxygen anymore, and so you rip it off, and you just say, I, I, I don't want anything to do with it, and I'm going to be just fine on my own. What begins to happen to you? Well, we hope you get to the surface, right? But we realize that the, the drastic result of no oxygen would lead you to suffocation. Now this is exactly what happened with sin. When we disconnected ourselves from the source of life, which is God the Father, we had no abilities to sustain life, and now we're stuck on this world with pain and with suffering, not because God created it, but because Satan introduced it. We thought it was such a wonderful idea that we ran with it, and now we're in the problem of pain and heartache that we face today. Now, if we want to blame God for this, we just can't do it because we realize that all the time God was doing His best to draw us to Himself. We realize that God created a perfect world for us. But even in that, even though we had perfection, that we wanted nothing to do with God and we turned our back on Him still. Now, the Bible continues on, and this is a verse that we quoted, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, this separation has not just something that was for Adam and for Eve, but it's something that's spread to each one of us. And we realize that there's a large consequence that comes with sin, and this is found in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. And it says, for the wages of sin is what? Now, how many of you would like your boss at the end of a work week to say, here are your wages, and your wages are death, right? We work so hard in this world to finally get what we want, and our wages are simply death. You see, a life separated from Christ is nothing more than just a life of destruction. And this is why many times we're burdened with the, the guilt and burdened with the cares of this world because we feel the separation from God and we know that we can't continue going on and we feel overwhelmed and we just can't feel like we can take much longer. And the question is, what is the answer to the problem of suffering and what is the answer to the problem of sin? Now, many of us have looked at this question before in other places in Scripture and we'll do some of that tonight. But would you believe it? that the answer of sin and suffering is actually found in the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation tells us in the opening chapters that it's a revelation of someone very specific, and it's a revelation of who? Of Jesus Christ, right? Now, it's very fitting that Revelation was written by one of Jesus' closest disciples. Did you know that? The, the John the Revelator was one of the twelve disciples of Jesus. 
Now, John wrote the Gospel of John as we have it. He wrote 1st and 2nd, 3rd John, that's in the New Testament as well, towards the end, towards Revelation. But John also, towards the end of his life, he was put under persecution. And they tried to kill him, and finally they couldn't kill him. They actually dipped him in a thing of tar, right? Burning oil, my wife tells me. And the oil wouldn't kill him, so they said, we can't do anything with this guy. So they ship him off to the island called Patmos. Now, as John is on that island, John begins to get revelations of the visions of what happens in the book of Revelation, and that's how we get the book today. Now, what's interesting, as you read through the Gospels, you realize that there were many disciples that were close to Jesus, right? You have the 70 disciples, but then you have the 12 disciples who are even closer to Jesus. And then you have Peter, James, and who? John which is kind of the inner circle of Jesus. And out of those, I don't know if it's just the way John likes to describe himself, but he calls it the disciple who he, Jesus loved, right? And that was John himself, seemed to be the closest disciple to Jesus. And as the closest disciple to Jesus, who do you think would be the best to give us a revelation of Jesus Christ? None other than John the disciple, right? And as John is writing the book of Revelation, the, the book of Revelation in Greek is entitled Apocalypsis, which just means an unveiling or a revealing. And who is it unveiling or who is it revealing or who is it telling us about? Well, it's none other than Jesus Christ. You see, John, when he writes this book, he realized for many years he had spent time with this man who had transformed his life. And now through the prophetic visions, he's able to give a clearer understanding of who God is. Notice the opening words of Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 that we've read together many times. It says that it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, Revelation continues on many times throughout the book telling us about the character of Jesus. Some people say that in the first four or five chapters of Revelation, you can find Jesus mentioned over a hundred different times. Now, it won't be the name of Jesus. It might be a symbol for Jesus or he that stands in the place of Jesus, you know, a personal pronoun or whatever that may be. But you realize that Revelation is just filled with the content about who Jesus is. Now, how many of you can say that that's not typically what first comes to mind when you think of the book Revelation? You think of Revelation and you think of all the symbols. You think of all the beasts. You think of the end of the world. And you think of all those things. Now, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Those things are contained in the book of Revelation. And through those, we do get a picture of who God is, right? You understand Jesus through the different prophecies and symbols and beasts and pictures that we get. But also, Revelation gives us a clearer understanding of who Jesus was himself. Notice some of these passages together as we look at them. Just in the first chapter of Revelation, we're going to find several keys about who Jesus is. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. It says, Jesus Christ, who is the what? Faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Now, remember John is writing to a bunch of first century Christians who are going through what type of environment? It's an environment of persecution. They're being persecuted for their faith under the Roman Empire who believes that you have to bow down and worship the emperor and all these different things. And Christians say, no, 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 we only have one God and it's the Lord Jesus Christ and that's who we're going to follow. And they're going through this. And they start to wonder, has everything that we learned really been true? And Jesus, when he gives the revelation, he says, I want to tell you one thing that I'm the faithful witness. That regardless of what you're going through, that you can remember that you have a faith that is firm, right? And then he continues on and says two other things that would give them great hope and that can give us hope today. Jesus tells us that he's the firstborn from the dead. Now you might say, well, why is that significant in helping us to understand who Jesus was? How many of you have ever lost a loved one before? Anyone? Maybe someone close to you. And you feel that pain of knowing what it's like, seeing that person go into the grave, and you, you know in theory that there's a better hope for them, and that Jesus promises that, that He will give them life eternally afterwards, but we begin to wonder, is that really true? And Jesus comes back to this first century group of people who are being persecuted, and He says, hey, I can tell you one thing, everything that you know about me is true. And also I can tell you that I've been to the grave, and I've come back out. And I realize that God has the power to raise you again and the ones that you love who fall asleep. You see, in the very opening chapters of Revelation, Jesus is showing that he's a God of comfort, that he's a God of love. He never wanted the suffering to take place, but he says, hey, 
You know what it's like to suffer. I know what it's like to suffer too. Not only has God lost loved ones, but God Himself died on our behalf. Now Jesus continues on and He says that He's ruler over kings of the earth. We saw two nights ago this, the prophecy of Daniel chapter 2. Do you guys remember that? And we saw the secession of empires from Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome and divided Europe. And we saw that in that, God's hand was orchestrating the leading powers of the world. Have you ever felt like God has left you alone? Have you ever felt forsaken? Didn't know if God was really there? You know, God, if He can set up kings, He tells us that He rules over the kings of this world that He manages the large picture. And sometimes we wonder if God really cares about us, but He tells us, don't forget that I'm still ordering the very things that happen on this earth. Now this is just some of the picture that we get of Jesus in Revelation. Now notice it continues on, and we're going to be getting to the, the focal point of our message, but Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, notice what it says. Still talking about Jesus, to Him who loved us and did what? washed us from our sins in His own blood. Now let me ask you a question. We looked at last night that sin is what caused Lucifer to be expelled from heaven. We saw that sin, when grabbed hold of by Adam and Eve, is what caused them to be ushered out of the Garden of Eden. And sin is what brings destruction to our lives today. We wonder why do bad things happen to good people? It's because there's sin in this world. And Jesus says there's one thing about Him very interesting, that He loves us and that He's going to do what? He's going to wash us from our sin. Now the wages of sin is death. In other words, God is going to be removing the thing from our life that is killing us. And this is the way that Jesus is introduced in the book of Revelation. A God who cares for His people. A God who oversees the affairs of time. But God is a God also who longs to deliver His people from the burden and the pain of sin. We're going to see this repeated multiple times in the next few verses that we look at. But notice the verse goes on and it says, To Him be glory and dominion forever. Amen. As you see that Jesus is willing to deliver us, how can you not say, praise be to God? That God is going to deliver us from the very things that's bringing heartache and that's breaking down our lives and that the Lord will finally give us freedom from these things. Now it continues on and we looked at this de depiction of Jesus our first night. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 as we're looking at how does Revelation reveal Jesus. It reveals Jesus here by saying, Behold, He is coming with what? Clouds and every eye shall see Him. Now, if someone tells you that Jesus comes and you happen to not see it, are they true or are they false? False, right? Jesus says that every eye will see Him, right? All throughout Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says to the same thing. If they say that He's in the inner room, don't believe Him, right? Because as the lightning shines from the east to the west, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus is promising that He's going to come back soon. It's not going to be a secret, but He's coming back for everyone so that they can experience life eternally with Him. Now these are some of the major pictures that we get about Jesus. And one final one before we move into the bulk of the message is Revelation chapter 1, verse 8. And this is where Jesus says that He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now some of you might be thinking, well that's really significant. I have no idea what that means. Now what's interesting to note about this it would be like saying, I am the A and the Z, right? Alpha is just the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And Jesus, what is He saying by that? In other words, I'm the beginning. I'm the one who started it all. I was there in creation. I was there forming you out of the dust of the earth. But also, I'm going to be there all the way at the end of time. And if there's one person you can trust, it's someone who's been there forever, right? If you ever have a question in your workplace, do you go to the new guy? No, you go to the person who's been there forever. And as we see that Jesus has always been there, that He's faithful and we can trust Him, do you think that the words He tells us are true? Now, we've already seen that Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, He longs to wash us from our sins in His own blood. That's what we read together, right? Just up here on the screen. Now, what's interesting to note in Revelation chapter 1 is that we get a very interesting picture about who Jesus is. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. And notice what the Bible says in describing Jesus. Now this might seem like we're just going on a tangent, but there is a point to it, and you're going to see how it all relates to each other in a moment. 
Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Revelation chapter 1, and we'll actually begin in verse 12. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 12, and notice what Jesus says. John is here describing his experience, and he says, Then I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And having turned, I saw what? Seven golden lampstands or candlesticks, depending on your translation, right? Okay, keep that in mind, and that's what's depicted here on the slide. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the who? The Son of Man. Now, who is the Son of Man? We realize that's Jesus, right? One like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. And it continues on through this passage to tell us more about the physical appearance of Jesus, right? You realize that verse 14 tells us his hair, or his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many water. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Now, if you're anything like me, the first time I read that, I was thinking, well, that's a really great depiction, but I have no idea why John decided to put that in the book of Revelation. What's interesting about the setting of Revelation, and we discussed this on night number two in the seven keys of understanding prophecy, is that Revelation has a setting in the sanctuary of heaven, right? Do you remember we talked about that? Where is the setting of Revelation? And we're going to talk about this tonight, and this relates to what is God's solution to the problem of pain and suffering in the world that we face today. Notice what are some of the articles that are listed here. Jesus says that he's walking around in the midst of a building that has seven golden candlesticks. Now, do you think this is just because someone set up seven candlesticks and they just like to decorate their house that way? No, you see, when a a first century Jewish Christian is reading this passage of Scripture, their mind is immediately pulled back to, hey, I know one other place where there's a seven-branch candlestick, and that's found in the tabernacle of God. Now, we see sanctuary language all throughout the book of Revelation. We'll look at one more point of how the sanctuary language is actually referred to Jesus. But there's also times where you see that they they have the golden censers, right? That's found in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And that's the censer of incense that was hung around and swung around the, the temple on earth. We realize that there was an altar that's talked about in Revelation, which is the altar of incense that was found in the temple. And all of these other articles of the temple... In other words, to understand Revelation, we have to have a clearer understanding of what was taking place in the sanctuary service on this earth. Now, it's not just this picture of Jesus that gives us a clearer understanding that this is in the sanctuary service, and this is a passage of Scripture that we read together already, but something else is very interesting about how the book of Revelation reveals Jesus. Notice notice what this says. Jesus is described in the book of Revelation as a lamb 27 times. Now you might be thinking, well that's, so what, he's described as a lamb. But I want to ask you a question. Why is Jesus being described as a lamb significant? How many of you, without ever reading the Bible before, would hear about a lamb and immediately think, oh, well that must be Jesus. That's not something natural to us, right? It's a symbolic word that helps us understand who Jesus was. Now notice what this says in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 6. It says, and this is just one of the passages talking about Jesus as a lamb, and I looked and behold in the midst of the throne stood a lamb as though it had been what? Slain. You see, now the book of Revelation doesn't just talk about there being a lamb that's in perfect order and just walking around fine, but that there's a lamb that has been slain. Okay, that's interesting. Now it continues on and it says, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, notice what this one says. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the what? Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. Now, who is this lamb? It's obviously Jesus, right? Now, notice this next passage. We looked at Revelation chapter 13 in a small degree last night, but notice what it says, how those, remember if you were reading the passage, it says that all the world would wonder after the beast, right? And we stopped there. But then it said, except those whose names are written in the Lamb, 
book of life who was slain from the foundation of the world. You see, throughout Revelation, there's this idea that there was a lamb that was slain. There was a lamb that was slain. There's a lamb that was slain. There's this idea of sanctuary imagery, the candlesticks, the altar of incense, all of these different things. And you might be saying, what in the world does any of this have to do with the solution of pain and suffering on this world? Well, in order for us to understand what Revelation is talking about with all these symbols that are symbolic of sanctuary language, do you think that it would be profitable for us just to take a moment to look at the Old Testament sanctuary that all of these symbols are derived from? Now, for those of you who weren't here before, remember we've said that Revelation is the last book or the last chapter of the book, right? In other words, we can't just go to the last chapter of the book and understand everything about the book from that last chapter, but we need to know all of Scripture in order to understand Revelation. Now, that's the same thing that we're finding ourselves in tonight. This land that was slain, this land that was slain, we've heard it before that that's Jesus, but how does that really relate to delivering us from the problem of pain and suffering? Well, in the sanctuary service, many of you are familiar with this, and if you're not, you can go to the inception of the sanctuary, which is found in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8. And in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8, God says to the children of Israel, let them make me a sanctuary that I might dwell among them. You see, God wanted a place where he could meet with his people, and he decided that that would be the sanctuary. Now, when Moses was building the sanctuary, Moses didn't just come up with a building that he thought would be adequate, maybe how we build a church today, right? We don't get, we don't get blueprints from God. But you see that Moses actually did. God took him up onto the mount, and he says, make this sanctuary after the pattern of the things that I have shown you on the mount. I believe that's Exodus chapter 33. And as Moses builds the sanctuary, it's after the specific order of the sanctuary that's in heaven. You can read more about that in Hebrews chapter 9, where we see that that's the sanctuary of the new covenant Paul describes it as. Now, in this sanctuary, there's, there's three major components that we need to understand that give us an understanding of how God was planning on doing away with sin and suffering. Now, if you were an Israelite, you would live in one of those tents around there. Now, if you were lucky, you would live close. If not, you would live far away. Now, if you were to sin, and you were to fall, and you knew that you did something against God, there was something that you had to do, right? You had to go to your own little farm, you had to pick your nice, perfect lamb, and you had to take that lamb and lead it all the way through the tents of your friends and neighbors, and they think, well, why is she carrying a lamb today? I wonder what she really did, right? And you see them coming on, and they're coming with the lamb, and you're, you're humbled through this process, and you finally get to the sanctuary, to the door of the sanctuary, and what is this first item that you see there? Well, it's the altar of burnt offering. As you come into the altar, and as you come into the sanctuary, you see the altar of burnt offering. That's the very first thing that you come in contact with. And as you bring your little lamb there, it is now your responsibility to lay your sins on that lamb. Now, this is a symbolic process of where the Bible tells them that they were to take their hands and they were to press it on the head of this lamb and to confess their sins. And the sin was symbolically transferred to this lamb who then the person was to take a knife and slit the throat of the lamb, and then the blood was to be applied to the sanctuary. Now, all of this was so that God could get rid of the sin problem. You see, sin was something that God hates, right? God can't dwell with sin. Can righteousness and unrighteousness dwell together? Can God still have a law that's binding and yet still not have a law that's binding, right? That's what sin is. Sin is the transgression of the law. He can't do it. But God loves the sinner, but he hates the sin, so he has to figure out how is it that I can separate the sin from the sinner so that I can take the sinner home with me. Well, God realizes that as you, tr as you symbolize the transference of sin to this lamb, that you're reminded of the fact that someone who's innocent and never sinned is now bearing the responsibility of your wrongdoing. Now, I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to kill anything. There's only been two things that I've ever killed in my life. Both of them are robins. And not Robin Mox, who's one of the guys who attends here, but a robin bird. And I, don't, I, I know there's hunters in this room, and you might think this sounds a little feminine, but I really do not enjoy taking something else's life. It just seems kind of weird to me. 
I remember looking through the scope of my little gun and putting the, the robin in the, the middle of the crosshairs and pulling the trigger and just watching it fall over. And I realized that needlessly, I had just taken the life of an animal. Now I understand some people do it so that they can eat and they can live and I, I understand that. But we realized that even killing something so small has an impact. You realize, well, that didn't have to die. And that died because of my ignorance. Now can you imagine that every time you sin, you have to bring a lamb with you and you have to take its life because of your mistakes. Does that seem fair? I think this is to remind us that sin is something that's never fair. You see, sin is not something that, that God ever wanted to happen, but as you realize the consequences of sin, you realize how terrible it is. And as you realize the suffering little lamb that has to die, you think, maybe I should think twice before I do that next time, right? Maybe I should ask God to help me with those things so I don't have those same desires. And so this is the process that goes through. Now, after the lamb is slain, the blood is taken by the priest. And the priest takes it and he sprinkles it on the veil. And this is what we see symbolized here. As the priest comes and he symbolizes it from the, the blood onto the veil, it symbolizes the sin going from the sinner to the lamb, from the lamb to the sanctuary. Now we're going to talk about this more. I believe it's night number eight, talking about how does the sanctuary ever remove its sin. And we'll realize that Jesus is drastically connected to that, and he's the only one that can do it. But what's interesting to note is that this, the sin is, is constantly has to be deferred to something else in order to find relief for the guilty party. And as the sin is applied, they realize that that's only when they can find forgiveness. Now, notice with me that this is a very familiar thought, but we just don't think of it as a lamb, right? We realize that the Old Testament sacrifices pointed forward to who? Jesus. Now, is that something that we've just kind of made up in Christianity? Or is that really something that's true? Notice what John the Baptist says in John chapter 1, verse 28. He says, Behold, talking about Jesus. Remember? He sees Jesus from a long way off and he cries out, Behold the what? Lamb of God, which does what? Takes away the sin of the world. Now, I want to ask you, what's the, what went wrong in heaven? It was sin. What went wrong on earth in the Garden of Eden? It was sin. What went wrong in each one of our lives? It, it's sin, right? And now there's this one, this lamb that people have been constantly sacrificing and it's all been pointing to Jesus. You know, I hear some people say in, the, in Christianity that they feel sorry for the Old Testament Jews because they were saved by their works, right? You know, they had to, be, they had to kill those lambs and they thought that through those works that they were to gain righteousness with God. Now, if you correctly understand the sacrificial system, don't, don't get me wrong here, now listen to what I'm saying that if you correctly understand that, that that was simply an act of faith pointing forward to Jesus. You see, it wasn't that they thought that they were saved by actually slaughtering that lamb. They knew that there was going to be another fulfillment of that lamb who would actually be able to remove the sin. But as they were waiting for so long, they started to get caught up, and you read through the minor prophets, and they started just killing and killing, and God says, hey, I've had enough of your offerings. I'm not here just looking for blood, but I'm looking for a right heart, right? And you've, you've started to miss the picture. You've gotten so caught up in the details and the order of service that you've forgotten about the principles that I was trying to bring out. And God is saying what really was all of this was about is it was about Jesus. You look at the sacrifices in the Old Testament, it's about Jesus, every single one of them. You look at the feasts, the major feasts of the Jews, and they were all pointing to Jesus and fulfilled in His life. That's why we don't have to kill animals today, right? Because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice who stood in our place and stood in the place of those helpless lambs to take our sin upon himself. Now we see that the lamb of the book of Revelation is the lamb who still bears our guilt. And I don't know about you, but I think the problem with myself today is that I don't have to kill a lamb. You see, for the, the Jews, they realize the consequence of sin at least to some degree. But there was something every time they took the life of that lamb, they had to be reminded, it's because of my sin that I'm killing it. It's because of my sin that I'm killing this little lamb. But now in Christianity, we realize that Jesus is the lamb of God, and we start to think, well, you know, if I sin, it's not really a big deal, right? I mean, God forgives me, which praise the Lord, He does. But we start to forget the sacrifice 
that Jesus paid for our sins. And Hebrews chapter 6 talks about when we, when we start to sin willfully and we start to carry out those things, that it's like crucifying the Son of God afresh. We often mock the Romans who nailed Jesus to the cross, but we realize that it's our sins as we decide to go against God's will on a daily basis that nailed Jesus to the cross. It wasn't some centurion that was heartless. It was myself because of my sin. But you see, the beauty of the cross and the beauty of the whole sacrificial system, and this is what Revelation chapter 1 and the rest of the book is pointing to, that the solution to sin is this Lamb of God which is going to take away the sins of the world, that He's going to wash you from your sins in His own blood. And we realize that it was through the self-sacrificing love of Jesus that we have hope in our lives today. You know, how many times do we just hasten through the last few chapters on Jesus' crucifixion. You know, we know it so well. We see the crosses. We, we see the symbols. And, and we hear about it so much that it's almost become cliche. But Revelation, you can look over and over again. Revelation chapter 4. There's exalting in heaven. The angels just cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Why are they crying that? Because of the selfless, sacrificing life of Jesus who was willing to surrender everything for you and for me. You see, Christ was treated as we deserved so that we could be treated as He deserved. He was condemned for our sin in which He had no share that we could be justified by His righteousness in which we had no share. Does that make sense? He died the death which was ours that we could live the life which was His and by His stripes we are healed. You see, Jesus took the short end of the stick. He realized for the love that He had for each one of us, He was willing to go to Calvary's cross. You see, Calvary does a lot more than we think about today. As we came out of the context of last night, looking at the origin of sin and of suffering, and Satan's accusations against God that God is not fair, God is not a God of love. If you really want to have an enjoyable life, you need to follow your own desires, right? That was Satan's, Satan's motto as he's going through. But what Jesus shows on Calvary's cross is that God was fair. That God was love, right? It says no greater love than this that a man should lay down his life for his what? Friend, let alone his enemies. And God loved us so much that He says, you know what, I'm willing to lay my life down. Satan also was accusing God that his law wasn't fair, right? If, if iniquity was found in Satan or lawlessness, it means that he wanted nothing to do with the law of God. And by doing that, Satan says, God, your law is so unjust that no one could keep it you know, why don't you just do away with that? But God, through Calvary's cross, shows that the law is not the issue, right? Jesus says, I haven't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus, God realizes that His law, even though it caused death, right? The wages of sin is death. That He realized it was still just. And instead of removing His law, when He was put in the option of either removing the law or dying Himself, He said, you know what? I'm willing to die on Calvary's cross because I know that my system of government is fair. You see, Calvary answers all the accusations of Satan. It helps us realize that God is a God of love. If we ever have questions, if we ever have doubts thinking that God has ever left us, remember Calvary where God was willing to lay everything down for us. You know, this is the, the beauty of the cross is that there's only one person who can take the guilt of sin away. It's not myself. It's not your good works. It's not your good charitable deeds. It's not just being a good person. There's no one else who can do anything to get rid of the guilt of sin. And we might try to drown it out with all sorts of other things. I don't know about you, but I know in my life when I turned my back on God, I thought, you know, there has to be something else that can give me fulfillment. So I turned my back on God and thought that I could find it in drugs. I thought that I could find it in driving fast. I thought I could find it in friends. I thought I could find it in movies. I thought I could find it in music. And you just pursue the world trying to drown out the guilt that you're feeling. But we realize that there's only one place that we can find relief from our guilt of sin, and that's Calvary. You know, Jesus tells us that oftentimes the reason why, and we looked at this passage of Scripture last night, the reason why we don't have life is because we're not willing to come to Him, right? John chapter 5, verse 40, it says, but you are not willing to come to Me that you might have life. You see, it's one thing that Revelation tells us about the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. 
But the real thing is that we have to come to the Lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world and ask Him that we can have life. Does it do any good that Christ died on Calvary's cross if we never accept that into our own life? Now, how many of you think that it might be helpful if we could say, Lord, what does it really mean to accept you into our lives in a very practical way? Notice this and just a very quick thing. You know, I think of an analogy that goes along with this before we move on. You know, there's the, the remedy of sin is Jesus dying on Calvary's cross and us accepting that and how easy it is to go there. But I was reminded of the story. I came across the story. It was in 2011. There was a man who, at the age of 24, realized that he had an infected tooth. And he had a toothache, and so he went to the dentist, and the dentist quoted him a price, and he didn't think that that price was really manageable, so he went back home. And you know what happened to that man two, two weeks later? The man died. Because he wasn't willing to pay the price to experience the healing that he could offer. Now this is a broken analogy for what we're looking at in Christianity. We realize that all we have to do is come to God who has the, problem, the solution to our problem. Now he tells us that we don't even have to pay him anything, right? By grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We realize that we're standing there. Like the man who has a chronic disease that's about to kill him, and all we have to do is come to Jesus, but how often do we wait? You see, Jesus continues on and he says, For God so loved the world that he did what? That he gave his only begotten Son. And I, I love this next word, and it says that whosoever. Now, who does that mean? Anyone. Can you ever be too bad to come to God? Can you ever be too good to come to God? Can you ever be too strong to come to God? Can you ever be whatever else it is? God says that whosoever would do what? Believe in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, I have a friend who was served on death row. He was one vote away from the death sentence in Texas because he was involved in a murder. After being involved in the murder, and some of you have heard this story before, he was let out on false charges. Now, it is true that he had involved in a murder, but there was an issue in the case. After seven years, he was let out of jail after being almost on death row, and he was supposed to be there for life. He gets back out, and he goes into the world, and he embezzles money from his boss. He gets back in jail. He finally gets out of jail for the second time, and he decides that now he really needs some more extra cash, so he starts to deal drugs, and he gets back in jail. Three times he's in prison, and you hear the people say, you know, people like that never change. There's no hope for those kinds. Those are chronic lifetime prisoners, right? They're more comfortable in the prison than outside. You hear all these different reports. But you know what happened? The third time he was in prison, he started to read his Bible. And he found Jesus. And he was able to see Jesus so clearly that he gave his life to him, and he got out of jail, and he started knocking on people's doors and just giving Bible studies to anyone he could. And he knocked on the lady's door who had voted no to his death penalty. Now, she was the only reason why he was still physically alive that day. He knocked on her door and she accepted Bible studies. He reminded her of who he was, and I'm, I'm surprised she still let him in. But they have this Bible study. She ends up being baptized, and the man is now a pastor in Texas. You know why? It's because whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, Jesus tells us that the first step of coming to Him is that we must believe. We must believe that first off, we need help, right? That I'm a great sinner, but even more than that, that Jesus is a great Savior. And as we believe that, we see that Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says that God demonstrated His love, right? Talk is cheap, we hear. But Jesus demonstrated His love in that while we were yet sinners, what did He do? Christ died for us. You see, it wasn't once we got it right that Christ died for us, but it's when we were still messed up that Christ died for us. It's when we needed help the most. It's when we hated God the most that Christ died for us. And this is the solution that Revelation points to. It's the Lamb that was slain from the foundation of the earth that is going to resolve the sin problem and that can be, bring relief to your and mine heart tonight. Now notice, as we look at Calvary's cross, it's not just something impersonal any longer, but we realize that it's what Jesus is speaking to our hearts, right? That whosoever is not just a general term, but Jesus is saying, if you would believe, if I would believe, you can have everlasting life. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that it's just belief in Jesus, right? It tells us that the devil believes and he trembles, but there's something else that happened. 
When we believe in Jesus, notice what takes place. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. In talking about being converted, this is what Paul tells them. He says, repent therefore and be what? Converted that your sins may be blotted out. How many of you want your sins to be blotted out? I don't know about you, but I don't want my sins to go on record anyway. I want them blotted out. And we realize that number one, we must believe that I'm a sinner, but Jesus is a great Savior. And number two, we must come to the point to repent from our sins. Now let me ask you a question. What does it mean to repent of something? I see a hand motion. To turn around, right? That's exactly what it means. Now, there's one part of the word to repent which means to have a sorrow for sin, right? When you do something wrong and you tell someone you're sorry, don't you usually need to have a sorrow for what you did first? I remember my, bro- my mom used to try to get me to apologize to my brother without having a sorrow for sin, and it was just a shallow confession, right? Hey, Shay, I'm really sorry for what I did. I'm sorry I let your desk on fire, and I didn't really mean to do that. You know, will you forgive me? And he's like, yeah, I'm sorry for punching you. you know, and it, you just go through that, and it's like, well, that really didn't mean anything. But there comes where there's this deep heart desire to have a transformation, and you have a sorrow for sin, and you start to turn from it. This is what Ezekiel says. It says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and do what? Live. It says, turn. Turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? How is it that we can believe? How can we experience this forgiveness that Jesus offers? One is we we must believe. Number two, we must repent. And notice... The third one is that we must confess. This is one of my favorite verses, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. It says, if we do what? Confess our sins, He will debate whether we're good enough to forgive us. Is that what it says? No, no, no. It says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to do what? To cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is not a God who's wondering if we're good enough to be forgiven. But He says, if you come to Me, believing that you're a great sinner, but I'm a great Savior. If you will repent from your sin, turn from those things. Don't hold on to your sin anymore. And you will confess, Lord, I need your help. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. Do we have the assurance that He will do it? You know, the fourth part that I would add to this is receiving it. We must believe it in all aspects. We must believe that Jesus has given everything up for us. Notice what, what we find in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. We have to believe that after we've accepted the forgiveness of Jesus, that we truly have the new life that He offers to us. Would you agree with that? You know, Jesus says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. Jesus promises that we're going to have that experience, but we have to receive it. And how do we receive it? We receive it by faith. Notice what this says. It says, who himself, talking about Jesus, bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to what? Sin. Isn't that what we want? Lord, help me to be dead to sin. That we having died to sin might live to what? Righteousness. Now do you see the contrast there? We've been used to living all of our lives for sin and selfishness, right? We've done away with the law of God. We've broken it. We've fallen short. But it says that Jesus has come and died so that we might live unto Righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. You see, the cross of Calvary does more than just forgive us. The cross of Calvary empowers us to live a life of righteous obedience in Jesus. Right? I can't do that on my own. How many of you can be righteous on your own? Absolutely not. It's only as Jesus comes and as His faultless life is imputed on my behalf and as I read the Bible and as I see Jesus clearly that I'm changed into His image. And it says, by those stripes, we are healed. This is a beautiful promise in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. You might say, well, there's no way that I can live a new life. You don't know what I'm like. You don't know the struggles that I face. You don't know how long I've battled this sin or that sin. Well, I can can tell you honestly tonight that the Lord can give you deliverance from that. It tells us that it is God who works in who? In you, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Now, I don't know how you can get a better combo than that. It's God who even gives you the desire to want something good. Can you repent on your own? Can you have a sorrow for sin on your own? Absolutely not. It's only as God is working in you and as He gives you that sorrow, He leads you to confession. Can you confess your sins to God on your own? No, it's only as He's working in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. 
You see, God promises that he's able to take our lives and change them into something beautiful. For the sake of time, we'll skip this last verse, but I want you to be reminded that Jesus is longing to do great things for us as his people. Jesus longs to be able to make us whole once again, and he sacrificed everything in our behalf. You know, there's a story that's told that I'm often reminded of, of a young boy. He wasn't a very rich boy, and he actually didn't have a lot of money and didn't have the ability to have something that he wanted so much. He just wanted a little sailboat. And he asked his parents, parents, can I, can I get a boat? You know, can I really get this? No, well, you know, you're going to have to save the money. So he works really hard. He starts mowing lawns, and he's saving the money, washing cars, doing everything that he can. And finally, he gets enough money. Well, he didn't have enough money to just go purchase it, but he had enough money that he could build it himself. So here, there he is with his dad, and they're fabricating this little boat, and they put it all together, and it's just perfect. After all this hard work and planning, he had been so excited about the good work that he had created. Now he goes to play with that boat, and he puts it out on the stream, and he's playing with it back and forth, and for some, some reason, the boat gets away from him. And he tries to get the boat, and he tries to get it, but he just can't reach it, and it sails off out of distance, and the boy walks home so disappointed. He goes to his parents, he says, you know that boat that I worked so hard for? I just lost it. You know, a few weeks later, he's walking down the road, and he's walking next to the shops, and he looks at, into the, the glass of one of the shops, and he sees a boat sitting there. And he says, that's my boat. I, I know that boat. I built that boat. I, I know that boat better than anyone else. So he walks inside, and he tells the store manager, hey, hey, that's my boat. Can I have my boat back? The guy said, sure. It's going to cost you about $200. Little kid says, what do you, I, I built that though. Why do I have to pay to get it back? It, it's mine. Well, you're, you're going to have to pay to get it back. Well, you know what? I love that boat so much. I'm going to do whatever it takes for me to get that boat back. Little boy once again starts working to get all the money that he can. Starts fundraising from everywhere that he can. And finally, he gets enough money to pay for, to get his boat back. You see, this is just an illustration of exactly what Christ has done for us. Christ made us perfect beautiful, just how He wanted us in the beginning. He loved us with an everlasting love. But because of sin, we drifted off from God and we were separated from Him. But Jesus, when He saw that we drifted, He said, I can't live life without you. I can't live life separated from you. And I need to do whatever it takes to get you back. And Satan comes and he says, well, if you want them back, it's going to come at a price. Well, what's the price? It's going to take your own life. And Jesus, when he sees that it's either you or his life, he says, you know what, I'm, going to, I'm willing to lay my life down. I'm going to give up everything. And I'm going to be treated as they deserve so that they can experience what I deserve. And Jesus lays his life down on Calvary's cross so that we can finally have the freedom from the worry, guilt, and fear that we've faced all our life. You see, Jesus longs for us to be made whole. You know, at this time, we want to hand out to you a card that's very important to each one of us. And I would invite my wife to just play the piano very quickly. That discusses what is our response to this appeal of, Lord, I need to give you my life. I need to have this experience of having the joy and assurance of salvation. But Lord, I need to know when I go home tonight that I'm right with Jesus. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.